Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Uh, We hope that you are doing well and that you are doing all that you can to stay safe. Uh, How are you doing, Dr. Woodward? I'm enjoying life immensely. I'm, uh, you know, of course, we're having to do the, the usual precautions, social distancing, and gloves and masks where needed, but I'm excited about uh, all that God is doing in the world of Christian faith and apologetics and the evaluation of other worldviews. It's, uh, it's amazing to be alive at this point in history. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, it's very interesting, so, to say the least. God, God is on the move, as, as we say in the Narnia genre of the speaking, Aslan is on the move. Yes. So, yeah, so tonight, uh, today, uh, I wanted to just have an opportunity to share some things that are on my heart in particular. Uh, I actually, in my own immediate family, have uh, a number of atheists um, praying for them, um, seeking opportunities to be a good witness by my life as well as words. And you know, many of us have friends, and maybe many of us actually listening to this broadcast or podcast have uh, maybe passed a part of our own life as an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic of some sort. And we have, you know, experiences, we learned things, we understood truths that, that brought us to the realization that I'm not alone in this universe. There is one who made me for himself. And then there are others who are maybe tuning in, thinking, you know, what is the universe next door? Is this going to be a study of galaxies and molecular wonders of the uh, world and the heavens that can I can learn something from scientifically? Well, yeah, we are really into science. We're really into all lines of evidence that really you know, give credence, give basis, uh, the, the foundation for belief. And so I wanted to re- re- revert to the basic question and get back to basics, and that is, how do we know that there is a God? How can, for example, a skeptic, an agnostic, a full-blown atheist like I was in college, how can that person consider reasons, genuine support, absolute hard evidence for the God who created us for our relationship with himself? That's really exciting to think that you know, there are atheists in the world who are shocking, and that's where we're going to go today. We're going to talk about three shocking atheists. Are you ready to be shocked, McShalman? Yes, I've been looking forward to being shocked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, of course, we said that that is one of C.S. Lewis's own favorite words. He actually suggested to the BBC radio directors of religious broadcasting that his own series of talks, which later became the book Mere Christianity, could be entitled The Art of Being Shocked. And some of you who've been following our program for the last several months or years, you know, may have heard us use that phrase. I'm still thinking maybe it would be the, a great name for a movie or a documentary. But The Art of Being Shocked is what we're going to do today. And I'm going to hopefully shock our listening audience 
with news about three atheists who were saying some pretty shocking things about their wobbly faith. So are we ready to head into atheist number one? Let's do it. So the the first uh, one I want to just bring up quickly, and you may have heard of the astronomer, the late astronomer, he passed away a few years back, but he was the institute, uh, the Goddard, Robert Goddard Space Institute. He was the founding director of that very esteemed research facility. And he became, by the time of the, um, I would say the 70s, late 70s, but especially the 80s and 90s, he became one of the supreme go-to experts on star formation and galaxies and the universe at large. So those who are doing any research for space exploration would check with Robert Jastrow to see what he thought or to check in what he and his uh, team of scientists at the Goddard Space Institute were working on as they compared notes and planned for the next stage of space exploration. Well, around the year 1980 and then later in the 1990s, so this is within the last couple decades, he shocked the world. That's why I called each of these atheists a shocker. He shocked the world with his book, God and the Astronomers. Now, that's a little bit risky for, in, in his case, he was like 90% atheist. I'll, I'll call him an agnostic, uh, which, of course, is a kind of a kindly way of saying, I'm not, I, I'm not able to say for sure there is no God, but I have no good uh, reasons or evidence for embracing that faith. So I'm, gonna, I'm in the uh, don't know category. So Robert Jastrow, a decided agnostic, one who openly um, would be very, very candid and open about his belief in materialism, that is, the universe is made up of stuff. It's matter. It's you know atoms linked together and molecules moving around uh, in the universe in the three dimensions, spatial and one dimension of time, doing its thing through the forces of nature. And yet Jastrow with a Ph.D. in physics, a professor at Dartmouth, get this, an Ivy League professor of physics uh, at, at, at the latter part of his career, published a book called God and the Astronomers. And the point of his book was not, I'm going to show that God is a figment of, of the, you know, the public's imagination, and astronomers are going to show that. He, he brought out the opposite. His point was that the evidence the abundant, clear, overwhelming, unavoidable evidence that has been streaming in in the 20th century shows the universe is not eternal. It began at a point in time. It had a birth date. Now, there's various, you know, ideas, theories, you know, the Big Bang, the standard hot Big Bang theory alleges uh, 13.8 billion years. Other theories are out there. But the point he's making in his book, the ultimate basic point, is that when you get to the beginning of the universe, all the equations break down. Nothing can be extrapolated or projected back beyond the, the birth point of the universe. And the fact that the universe did begin at a point in time is very uh, tricky, it's very iffy, it's very challenging to the standard atheist view. Now, he didn't throw his atheist, or in this, in this case, agnostic view, overboard. Let me just give you um, just a sense. Some of you have heard this quote, but at the end of his book, after explaining the awkward situation, science breaking down, the equations really going berserk at the T equals zero, the beginning point, the singularity, the launch point of the universe. 
He closes the book this way, and I'm going to read this quote. Uh, many of my students have actually memorized it, and I think uh, we've discussed this, Nick, many times, that his, his book, God and the Astronomers, ends with this quote. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Now, I just wow. absolutely love that, that ending. The scientist has lived his faith, the power of reason, the story suddenly is a reversal. It ends like a bad dream. He, he thinks he's now able to scale the highest mountain. He's able to figure out the most profound question. And they, as he pulls himself over that last final craggy rock at the very tippy top of the Mount Everest of scientific discovery, who greets him? A band of theologians. And they've been sitting there for centuries. They knew the answer through their you know, inference from clear scriptural evidence and, quite frankly, from the evidence of nature itself. So I, I would cite Jastrow, the late Robert Jastrow, who actually appears uh, briefly in the film Privileged Planet, which, of course, uh, Illustrious Media is known for that. We thank Illustrious Media for streaming those films for these last uh, 60 days. But the, uh, the idea, and, and I would say, if you're listening to this uh, on the weekend, you can still go to illustriousmedia.com and um, click on that, and I think it still may be uh, streaming as of the airing of this program on the weekend of May 30th, 31st. So what we're trying to say is that there's a, an amazing moment of truth that comes through a shock, if you will, that emerges from the writing and even the life of Robert Jastrow. Get on to the number two shock, second shocking atheist. And this uh, gentleman is not as well known. His name is Matthew Paris. It's like the city Paris, but add an extra R, so P-A-R-R-I-S, Matthew Paris. He's a writer. Uh, known for his articles and analytical articles in the Times of London. And if you want to pull this up, you can find it either on our website, you know, apologetics.org, just do a search in our little um, magnifying glass logo, just do a search for um, Africa. This is the one word, Africa. I'm looking right now at his article, and he says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. That's a bit of a shock. How can wow. an atheist say that uh, Africa needs God? Well, I'm not going to say you know a lot of the details. I'm not going to cite you know individual case case in point, except to say that in this two page, it's only two pages. It's right there on our website. But at the end of this, um, you know, and he says that he lost his faith in God as this as a young middle or middle aged man. But he realizes that when he went back to visit the same country where he had grown up, uh, Nyasaland, and actually it's called uh, Malawi. And he had visited other places in and around that particular part of Africa. And he finds that all the government organizations, all the education, all the attempted transformation cannot begin to cl come close to the transformation, that's the word he uses, the transformation of the people of Malawi, and he says, indeed, all of Africa, through the gospel of Christ, through this faith system or belief 
which changes lives. I'm looking um, at what he says at the end of this. Uh, this is a shocking article. Actually, it was published in 2008. I've been handing it out ever since. And I decided recently we need to have this on our website. And by the way, it elicited about a thousand responses from readers to the London Times. Think of that. The list goes on and on and on. Just to read the responses from readers, both atheists and Christians, is in is a secondary shock that goes a thousand down in these um, follow-on reactions. But he says Christianity, the post-Reformation and post-Luther, with its teaching of a direct personal two-way link between the individual and God, uh, smashes straight through. I love this way he puts it, smashes straight through the philosophical spiritual framework I've just described. In other words, that which enslaves Africans in bad habits. It offers, this is what Matthew Paris says, the atheist says, yet Christianity offers something to hold on to, to those anxious to cast off a crushing tribal groupthink. In other words, their tribe told them to think a certain way, and, and under the influence of discipleship in the Christian faith, they're thinking of others. They're not thinking of themselves. And he says, those who want Africa to walk tall in the 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how, like the education, that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. In other words, changing over from the tribal way of thinking to the Jesus Christ orient orientation is utterly transformational in a way that he finds uh, scary because it threatens his atheism, but absolutely undeniable and important for people to realize. I mean, I've, I've heard people talk about the transformation that Jesus Christ brings in an individual. This is the description from an atheist observer, sharp, sharp intellect, writer of first rank. He's describing how an entire continent has been transformed by the gospel. So um, that's, uh, I think, enough of a shock right there to make it worthy of uh, our you know, all-time Hall of Fame of shocking atheists. But I got a third one, and maybe we can find time for a bonus. But the third one is the namesake of our own ministry team, the C.S. Lewis Society. What most people often miss about C.S. Lewis is that he didn't become a Christian in his toddlerhood or his childhood or his teen period of life when he was shipped off to those boarding schools by his dad when his mom died of cancer uh, at the age of, uh, Lewis was only nine when she passed. And so, uh, having been raised in a nominal Anglican home, he lost his faith as a young person. So he was not a Christian uh, through his key time of development and education. When he went off to fight in World War I, he was not a Christian. He was a rank atheist, described himself that way to friends in letters. Came back to Oxford, where he had just briefly served for about a couple months in 1917. He came back in the year 1920, took off like a rocket, became one of the most famous, famously successful students in the history of Oxford University. Still an atheist, ingrained, staunch atheist. He said he was mad at, at God, you know, for not existing. It was one of the more 
humorous comments he made in the book Problem of Pain. He was convinced that God did not exist, and he was mad at God for not existing. So he, he saw the universe in a very pessimistic perspective. But at Oxford, he met many, many sharp scholars who were more or less at his same level of eagerness and, and, and sharpness of intellect. And the amazing thing that he couldn't get over, Nick, this is amazing to me, he kept finding that the sharpest, most uh, shrewd, most sensitive, most wise, most amazing students consistently were Christians at Oxford University. This just wow. really got under his skin. And he said, I fought this, this kind of like, you know, hound of heaven. He didn't use that phrase, but it reminds us of the, the famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. And as God pursued him down, you know, the highways and the byways, he, he just turned the other way. He tried to run. And finally, God got, got a hold of him, shook him to the core. And then at the age of about 32 and a half, or almost 33, in the fall of 1931, he had already come to faith in just some kind of God, some universal, mon, you know, monotheistic God, but he embraced Christ as the God who came down for us. And that took place, of course, in the fall of, of 1931. So he had spent nearly 20 years in the tunnel of atheism. And because of that experience, it prepared him for a life of powerful writing, incredibly deep, sensitive, probing analysis of the whole world of skepticism, and really even pantheism, all ways of thinking outside of the Christian orbit. He was eager to, to dialogue, to compare, and to share the case for Christ. And so we are really thrilled and humbled that we can actually name and have been since Princeton University in 1975, those three students, uh, launched the C.S. Lewis Society at the chapel of the university. And we are so uh, thankful for the opportunity to um, hold aloft that torch of truth under the banner of the name, uh, the memory of the very apostle to the skeptics, C.S. Lewis, who himself had been an atheist for 20-plus years. So do we have time for a bonus atheist? Yeah, definitely. Go for it. Okay, okay. So... So the, um, I, I could talk about other atheists. I could mention uh, atheists who had actually, who had actually written uh, books in defense of intelligent design. Yes, there are atheists and agnostics and secularists who have written books in defense of intelligent design. Uh, I'm thinking of Steve Fuller, with whom I had lunch. He, we brought him here to the University of South Florida on the occasion of Darwin's Bicentennial. You know, we were celebrating Darwin. You might say, why would you celebrate Darwin? Because he is a, a very important scientist, and his theory is important to understand both any evidence that supports it at the micro level and then the evidence that is running against it at the macro level. And so we brought Steve Fuller here. And so he would be a skeptic, a first-rank scholar. Sociology of science is his field. But he's written not one but two books defending Get this, defending intelligent design. Wow. I could talk about I could talk about others. Uh, there's a, an atheist I know who has, has written a book in in this physics area, in physics, especially cosmology. He thinks there's a strong case for God. He hasn't embraced God at this point, but he wrote an entire book about that. And uh, we already mentioned, of course, Jastrow, the agnostic, who made the case for God at the end of his book 
tying the, the loose ends together. But the atheist I have in mind, former atheist, is yours truly. Yeah, Tom Woodward, a professor here at Trinity College. It's been my privilege to lead the C.S. Lewis Society for about 30 plus, 31 years. And I was an atheist. At the end of my high school days, I did not reveal it to my parents. I didn't reveal it to my Sunday school teacher or any of the leaders at our church. But I had quietly slipped across the line into the world of skepticism. To me, the truth was found in Darwinism. The truth was natural selection, working on random mutations, crafting the wonders of nature. So I can relate. I can relate to those who are enraptured by Darwin's theory. I was in love. I was a super Billy Graham evangelist for evolution at Old Nassau, at Old Nassau, at the university there in Princeton. And so it was not until I was defending Darwin in front of Christian students who were trying to offer contrary evidence. That's when, in 1968, fall of uh, October, November, December of 68, uh, right when I was in the midst of my defense, I said, I want to meet the leader of your group. So we spent time together in his apartment. And that's when he opened the Bible. Whoa, that was a switcheroo. I was not ready for Isaiah 53. This incredible prophecy of a God who comes in the form of a suffering servant and who lays his life down for the very uh, humanity who would reject it, who would run the other way, and then hints of the resurrection of Christ. So that began a not, a, not just a short discussion, that began a five-month debate and dialogue with both Dr. Fullerton, the founder of the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship, now called the Princeton Christian Fellowship, and also Bill Fay, the one who had the loving, uh, caring attitude, the time, an hour every week, to come to my dorm room at Witherspoon Hall, second floor, second entry. And he came right there and did an investigative Bible study. And it was through that study that I, for the first time, understood what the Christian faith was all about. For the first time, I heard real evidence. For the first time, I had somebody who was caring and gentle and answered my questions, just faithfully leading me in the direction of Christ. There's a funny story. I, I actually was playing uh, Frisbee golf. Uh, sometimes you may have heard of uh, this, this uh, the ability to play Frisbee golf, and I was playing with a, a team of guys, and I threw the Frisbee really kind of went off in, in a kind of a weird direction, so I was running across the sidewalk to grab the, the Frisbee, and there in front of me was Dr. Fullerton. I hadn't seen him for almost, I'd say, two months because I had broken off a Bible study that I, he was trying to maintain with me. I said, I really don't want to talk with you anymore. And at that point, I looked up and I said, hello uh, to this gentleman, this Princeton graduate from 1913. And he said, hello, Tom. And I said, how are you doing? He said, fine. He says, I, I hear you've been studying with our friend Bill Fay. I said, yes. He said, well, what are you thinking? I said, well, I'm, I'm thinking that Christ probably did miracles, but I can't believe that he rose from the dead. And he said, well, if Christ has the power to do miracles, why could not Christ have the power to raise himself and the Father as well to raise him from the dead? And my answer was, uh, I don't know. 
that was the best I could do. So, so what I would say is that it was that point that it was I realized I don't have much of a basis uh, for defending my skeptical position. And just literally about a month later at the apartment of Bill Fay, I realized my need of a savior and I bowed and received the one who died for me and rose again. Christ turned me from an atheist into a follower of himself. If you are a skeptic or if you know a skeptic, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org with any sort of question, a statement, a comment, anything you may have to say. And we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.